is the first chapter of the book of Daniel. And about whom do you think should the sermon be? About Daniel. Or not? And if so, who was this Daniel? And what then is his relevance for our life here in London today? Outside this book, there are only two references made to him in the prophecy of Ezekiel, the chapters 14 and 28, where Daniel is seen as one of the great wise men, together with Noah and Job. And then there is one more reference by, our Lord, by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24, when the Lord Jesus is predicting the great desolation. No other references exist to Daniel either in or outside the Bible. And in fact, hardly a trace is any more to be found of Babylon, the great city where he lived, and none whatsoever of Daniel himself. And many have doubted his very existence. And if he existed, and we believe that he did since the Bible tells us so, What can then be the relevance of this man for us today, a man who lived in a time so long ago in a land so very different and in a culture so very alien to us? If the story is indeed about Daniel, is it then the story of a rather unique boy who volunteered to eat his vegetables? and looked the healthier for it. Or a boy who did his schoolwork in a very outstanding manner and achieved success. A good example for all the boys and girls who do not like their veggies and their homework to be quoted by their parents, often much to the chagrin of the young people, no doubt. Or is Daniel about somebody or something else? Now, before we turn to that question, let us briefly examine the historical context of this book. Because in the book of Daniel, we are now about 120 years after the prophetic warnings by the prophet Isaiah, and after also the visible warnings in the fate of the ten tribes, because the kingdom Israel, not heeding God's law and his warnings and not trusting in him, had gone into exile at the time of Isaiah, never to return as a state or a nation again. And Isaiah's prophetic words had also warned Judah, who was threatened by the same Assyrian king, Sennacherib, to trust the Lord when they had to face him. We can read it in Isaiah 30, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. These were words to King Hezekiah, who was caught between the Assyrians in the northeast of Israel and Egypt in the southwest the superpowers of the day. 
Now Hezekiah heeded the warnings of the Lord. And the Lord saved him because Sennacherib had to return. And Sennacherib boasted in his own annals that he had Hezekiah locked up as a bird in his cage. But of course, if you read between the lines of that political spin, you also know that he never got him. And then after Hezekiah, there was for three quarters of a century two of the worst kings of Judah, Manasseh and Ammon. And the last good king, Josiah, could not stem the tide of the idolatry and reverse the decline in Judah. Because Judah continued with its detestable practices and Josiah was unable to eradicate the ingrained evil of his days. And then we get to the time of Chronicles 36 and the time of Daniel and of Jeremiah, the great prophet of that day. And in the many chapters preceding Chronicles 36, and of course in his own prophecies, we can read how Jeremiah warned Judah again and again against their sins and their idolatry and their lack of trust in God. But neither the king nor the people were having any of it. They threw Jeremiah in jail. And the political situation at the time was very similar to what it was in Hezekiah's time. Because the little kingdom of Judah is still wedged between the two superpowers, still Egypt in the southwest and now the Babylonians in the northeast. And then we pick up the story in Chronicles 36, because after Josiah's death at Megiddo a few years earlier, there was a quick succession of kings, none of them who trusted in the Lord. All of them were trying to be clever in choosing which way to jump and with which of the two superpowers to ally themselves. And in addition to not trusting the Lord, they were also politically inept, always jumping the wrong way at the wrong time. Or maybe we should say that the Lord fulfilled the prophecy that he had given through Jeremiah in 2 Kings 23. But it says the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because all of what Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. And so the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel. And then it happens. As God's judgment, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he subdues Judah takes the valuables from the temple and some of its people, including some of the promising youth of the Jerusalem aristocracy, possibly as hostages, which was quite common at the time. And then Jerusalem, during the next decade or so, is so silly as to rise up two more times against Nebuchadnezzar, and each time Nebuchadnezzar comes back with more severe reprisals. And in the last one, he executes its leading classes and carries off the vast majority of the people and he destroys the temple. That is the setting. Daniel was probably taken in the first round in about 603 before Christ and the temple was destroyed maybe just over a decade later. So this boy grew up in disastrous times politically but also terrible times spiritually. Because David's throne is empty, Jerusalem is destroyed, and the temple 
is burned down. And I think it's hard to exaggerate what impact this had on the Jews. You see, the average dynasty in the ancient Near East lasted maybe a hundred years. The longest, I believe it was the 18th dynasty in Egypt, which is by far the most stable country politically and economically, lasted 250 years. But David's dynasty had been going for 400 years, like forever. And had not the Lord promised in 2 Samuel 7 an everlasting house in Jerusalem, the place that he had selected for his name, and an everlasting dynasty for David? And had he not repeated that promise to Solomon at the dedication of the temple? And in the midst of all their idolatry and their evil and their syncretism, Judah always continued to believe that they were a separate, a chosen people, and that David's line and Jerusalem were inviolate. And hadn't they been going forever, even when the northern kingdom fell by the wayside? And then, of course, the few faithful Israelites, they still were expecting the coming of David's great son, the Messiah. And all that is now completely shattered And that vision is utterly destroyed. It was gone, it seemed, forever. That is the time in which Daniel lived. A young boy, maybe 14, 15 years old, probably from a leading family, forcibly taken into exile by the victorious occupier of Judah. And he and his friends, they had come from the relative stability and security of a small homogenous, traditional town, Jerusalem, and from a country that in geopolitical terms were small and insignificant, but had a great vision of and for itself. And now they find themselves a small, frightened, minute minority in a much, much larger empire in a world city with a strange and powerful culture. And it was not a neutral, friendly environment. The writer uses for Babylon not its then current name, but a name which at the time was already archaic. He calls it in verse 2, the land of Shinar. It's the same place physically, but it has different connotations and associations. Because it refers back to Genesis 11. And there... In the plain of Shinar, they were building this great unified culture represented by the Tower of Babel. That is where the people had revolted against God's sovereignty. And also in Zechariah 5, the land of Shinar is described as the seat of wickedness. And that is the place, the writer tells us specifically, the place where Daniel was taken. And then we come to our chapter and we read, maybe somewhat surprisingly, that Nebuchadnezzar, in addition to being a ruthless and murdering general when campaigning, was also an enlightened statesman of sorts. Although he remained an absolute dictator and could be very dangerous, as the book of Nebuchadnezzar, the book of Daniel tells you. 
Because now Nebuchadnezzar wants to integrate his vast empire and unite it religiously and culturally and recruit the best from all his conquered nations into his administration. And that, of course, brings us to the question. Because what are the Israelites? And they're called Israelites, not Hebrews, not just another Semitic tribe. They're the Israelites, the people of the covenant. What are people from the Israelites like Daniel and his friends now to do? Withdraw? Sit at the rivers of Babylon and sing Psalm 137 over and over again and weep? Or cooperate, grab the opportunities, compete for the wealth and the power in a newer, bigger, wider, more exciting world. Should we turn into ourselves silent and isolated, or possibly becoming a violent sect or a band of zealots like the Jews did later? Or capitulate as a holy and separate nation and integrate and be absorbed in Nebuchadnezzar's empire? Do we protect our identity and hold fast to our traditions and de facto separate ourselves from the world? Or are we embracing the perceived certainties of this new and powerful culture? Such is the time in which Daniel lived. And this is the time in which Jeremiah, who had so often warned them in vain, writes his letter to the likes of Daniel to those taken into exile. And such is also our time. And the questions Daniel faced, we face. But why should we today look to Daniel and his problems and how he dealt with them? It is because the God who led Daniel's life is also our God. And the relevance of this book for us today is therefore not to be found not in the life story of some man called Daniel, but in what it says about Daniel's God. To put it simply, Daniel is not about Daniel, but it is about Daniel's and our God. God is the link between him and us, and what this book says about Daniel's and our God's, there it is its relevance to be found. And I would like to summarize the message of this chapter there for you this morning as follows. Daniel's and our God is the world's and our sovereign. God is king. And we note three things. We are in this world. The Lord has placed us in a world that often doesn't acknowledge him. But secondly, we are not of this world. We have always to be ready to draw the line between us and the world. But then in the last place, we should also note that the world is his. Because no matter the difficulties at times, the Lord is the sovereign of this world. So we are in the world, 
not of the world, but the world is his. Daniel and our God is the sovereign God, and he places us in the world. You see, Daniel knew that Israel was a separate, a holy nation, a nation set apart for the Lord. We hear him refer to Israel's position in his prayer quite extensively in chapter 9. Set apart not because they were better or special, but because the Messiah was to come from them. He was to come from Israel. And then he also knew Jeremiah. He refers to that prophet in the same chapter 9. And this Jeremiah, who had warned Israel so often and so earnestly to keep themselves holy and to beware of the coming punishment, he had also predicted that after 70 years, the remnant of Israel would return. The Israelite nation would be preserved and the Messiah would come. And Daniel therefore realized that it was essential that they should not lose their identity and should not be absorbed in the great Babylonian world. But then, as we heard, were they then to isolate themselves, sit around deeply sad and desperate and bewail the evils and depravity of this world? And they did, as you can read in Psalm 137. But was that it? distance themselves from life and reality and turn into sort of an Old Testament pietism and and a baptism, as it were. But then what about the great opportunities offered and the excitements to be experienced in this world city? And what about the careers that are there to be pursued? You see, Daniel was from a leading Jewish family and a gifted boy. He had the right background. He had the right capabilities. And then here is also the opportunity maybe a little bit less than voluntary, but to enter into the most elite school in the world. Because this, at the time, was the equivalent of Oxford or Cambridge or an Ivy League university. But again, it was not a nice and neutral place. Because the land of Shinar wasn't, and the school wasn't either. Because the specific and obvious purpose of that school was to absorb them into the Babylonian culture, religion, and to mold them first and foremost into servants of Nebuchadnezzar's great empire. And their new names make that perfectly clear. Because naming in the ancient Near East was an act of power, and it was supposed to set your destiny. Now, Daniel, which means the Lord judges, was changed by them, by the Babylonians, into Balthasar. May Bel protect. Bel, one of their idols. And then Hananiah means God is gracious, and it was turned into Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, which is another of their idols. And Mishaleus, like God, was changed into Mishach, who is like another one of these gods. And Azariah, God has helped, is the meaning, was changed into Abednego, the servant of an other idol called Nego. So the message is overwhelmingly clear. There is no subtlety about it. We, the Babylonians, and our gods are in charge, and you and your god is conquered, and we are going to put our stamp on you. 
and you are going to be taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, verse 4. And it doesn't mean just reading and writing. That means that you are going to be submerged in our Chaldean history and culture. So then again, there is this choice. What shall it be Daniel and his friends? Preservation in isolation or capitulation in adaptation? And then it is from the prophet Jeremiah that the answer comes. From the Lord, really, through that same prophet that is so often associated with doom, nation, and lamentation. And then listen, we read it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away in captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat your fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased and not diminished. And seek the peace, the shalom, the general political, social, economic, and moral well-being of the city, Babylon, where I have caused you to be carried away captive and to pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. So in short, get on with life. I do not know whether Daniel had read this letter by chapter 1. It may have arrived a little bit later. But he certainly acts in the spirit of the letter. And he did go to that royal school. And he must have worked very hard, because we read that he comes out on top of his class. To be precise, and we should note this, it is God who blessed this endeavor. Because we read in verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and things. So we heard then in the first place that we are placed in this world. God actually puts us right in the middle of it as the place where we are to live. But we will in the second place also hear that we are not of this world. We saw Daniel go into that dangerous school and later enter into the service of Nebuchadnezzar, the very destroyer of the temple. But then we also see him refuse the king's food. He wanted to stick to his own eating habits. Why? Was that really necessary? Nebuchadnezzar's food, no doubt, was pretty good. You can translate it, actually, as delicacies. So why then be so obnoxious, so silly, as to stick to these funny, rather peculiar eating habits of the Jews? You go to that school, and then you refuse the school meal. But you see, Daniel had read the whole of Jeremiah's letter, not just the part that suited him. And that is how we should read the Bible. 
And you note that in that letter, immediately following the encouragement and the instruction to participate in Babylon's life, Jeremiah reminds the exiles of their ultimate destination and destiny. And it is great news. It is glorious news. Because after 70 years, they will return to Jerusalem. Jeremiah says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. That's the place where Jeremiah is, Jerusalem. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then, unlike they had done in the past, then you will call upon me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. When you search me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. What a wonderful and what a great and what a glorious promise and consolation. But also Daniel thus understood that the nation's identity had to be preserved if they were to return and the Messiah were to come. 400 years after Daniel, there will be the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes. It was a terrible king from the time of the Maccabees who defiled the temple by putting an altar of Zeus into it. That is the abomination that causes desolation, which the Lord Jesus later refers to. And many of Daniel's visions later in the book speak in the first instance about this man. Now, this man wasn't satisfied with just syncretism. No, he wanted to Hellenize the Jews and to eradicate their religion altogether. And this king is also very specific in ordering that the Jewish eating habits had to stop at penalty of death because he recognized the importance for the people of Israel of remaining holy and set apart from the world. And so does Daniel. And he refused to give up the Jewish food laws that distinguished them from other people. Daniel participated in this world, but he remained ready to draw the line. Here at food, maybe ostensibly a small thing. Later, his friends in bowing, or not bowing, rather, to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had put up, and yet later again, in front of the lion's den, Daniel stands firm and continues to pray. So it was, if necessary, at great cost, because for his friends it was the fiery furnace, and for Daniel it was the lion's den. Because Daniel knew that ultimately not Nebuchadnezzar, not the big week that there is today, but the Lord was his sovereign and his king. And at the end of the day, Daniel was not Babylon's, but the Lord's. And like Daniel, we are the Lord's and not of this world. And that is why at times we have to be ready to draw the line. Because we can accept the world's challenges, but we have to resist its temptations. And we can cooperate but not compromised. We can engage with the world, but not become committed to the world. We can participate, but always with a detachment, always being able and willing to say no, till here, no further. 
because the Lord is our sovereign. He is your king. Jerusalem, earthly then and now heavenly, is the final destination, not Babylon. So Daniel and his friends stood firm from the beginning as young people. And I'm convinced that that helped them to stand throughout their life. Later, when the fiery furnace came, you hear his friends say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to Nebuchadnezzar, who was absolutely furious about the fact that they didn't want to bow for his statue. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And later, as we all know from the famous story, we see Daniel himself go to the lion's den that was prepared for those who wanted to continue to pray to God. And all of us, young of old, have to start now. Because if we do not draw the line and stand up for our Lord from the beginning, be it a new school or a new job or a new relationship, it will only become harder later on. Daniel here was still a teenager. He had learned to draw the line and learned to trust in the Lord when he was young. And if he and his friends had not done it here, how would they have been able to stand up in front of the fiery furnace and the lions then? And if at the fiery furnace the king had said, why did you not bow for my statute while you ate my unclean food earlier? What would have been the answer? And when and where do we draw the line? Daniel drew the line at eating unclean food. He perceived the threat to their religious identity, to their holiness. But what about today's life? Jobs, careers, books, TV programs, films, conversations with friends and colleagues. What about today's restless pursuit of wealth and entertainment? Well, I cannot even begin to give you an answer here. Uh, there is your own partly individual, but also partly parental and corporate responsibility to find the answer in ever-changing world. Some teenagers used to have this bracelet with the letters WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, that question. Or maybe even better, what would Jesus like you and me to do? Is not a bad starting point. And if we read Philippians 4, verse 8, about what it is that we have to reflect upon in our mind, it will certainly give us guidance on the books, the TV programs, the films, the entertainment, and the rest. And if we read in Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool, it will certainly give us guidance on the pursuit and the use of our wealth. And if we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, about holiness, it will certainly give us guidance on which language to use and when to decline to continue a conversation. 
So we have heard that our sovereign Lord has placed us right in the middle of this world. We also heard that, the world, that we are not of this world because we belong to God. We will finally hear that not only we, but the whole world is his, because he is the sovereign of this world. In the world, not of the world, but the world is his. And you know, that is why we can be at ease when we do draw the line. We can trust in him because he will make it well. Back in Joshua 24, at the time of the renewal of the covenant between the Lord and Israel, when they were about to enter the promised land, Joshua places Israel for a choice. And Daniel, no doubt, was as familiar with that choice as we are. You can read it in Joshua 24, verse 15. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve whether the God your forefathers served beyond the river that was back in Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now going. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And Daniel makes that choice. But how and why was he able to make that choice? Well, we read in verse 8, Daniel Resolved, Or more literally, it says, Daniel purposed in his heart. So there is a purpose, there is determination, and there is his heart. These words tell us that the decision was not made in the spur of the moment. It was not an impulse. Daniel was determined. He had this as his purpose. And the decision was well considered. But it was also not the result of a cool, opportunistic, cost-benefit analysis, because Daniel was in his heart, the seat of his heart and his mind, with his soul, with his whole being, committed to that decision. And why? Because Daniel trusted the Lord. And Daniel had relied on the promise of Joshua, who then also said, as I was with Moses speaking on behalf of the Lord, so I will be with you, and I will never leave you, and never forsake you. Be strong and courageous. And Daniel could read it in Jeremiah's letter, in verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. And Daniel trusted this promise from his sovereign Lord. And that trust was necessary. Because not complying with Nebuchadnezzar's rules could be dangerous, a dangerous business, as we hear from the mouth of that official in verse 10. He might have been enlightened of sorts, but he also remained a rather volatile and violent man. You can read that in Daniel 2 and 3. And he could take your head off in a minute. But Daniel was also rewarded. Because we read in the verses 9 and in verse 14 and in verse 15 how the sovereign Lord makes it well after Daniel had made his choice. Because the Almighty first rules the official's heart. And then he directs the outcome of that test in verse 15. 
It's another of these two low-key miracles that we so often find in the Bible, through which the Lord assures us that the world is his and that he rules the universe. So one reason that Daniel could take this difficult decision was that he trusted in the Lord, the sovereign of this world. Another reason was that Daniel prayed. He was in the habit, as we know from chapter 6, of praying regularly, three times a day, to his Lord. And no doubt this supported him in his decision. Because when you pray to the Lord regularly, how can you ignore what it is that he wants you to do? And if we speak with our Father in in heaven often, How can we then at the same time drift along with the temptations, the idleness, the vanities, and the empty pursuits of this world? Trusting, praying, and obeying Daniel and his friends were not disappointed in the Lord, the ruler of heaven and earth. And later on you can read that he spectacularly saved his friends from the fiery furnace and Daniel himself from the lion's den, and he quietly and equally effective, for he is the world's sovereign governed the official's heart and the outcome of that test. And then in the last verse, our text reminds us that since he is the sovereign Lord, there is always hope, always light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how difficult the present is. Because the last line of our chapter, it looks like such a little throwaway line. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. If we are reading this chapter after dinner or so, we may already be closing our Bible without giving it much thought. In fact, it may be what you are doing right now. It must be the end of the sermon. Well, we are nearly there, but not without hearing the final good news. You see, Daniel's life was a long, dark tunnel. He was a refuge. Maybe even worse, he was abducted, a hostage in a strained and hostile land for all his life. And yes, he had a glittering career, but he worked for a heathen, volatile, and violent man who had, and he had to give him bad news a couple of times. And then he saw his friends go into the fire furnace, and he looked at the lions then. And then he had to live with and be humiliated by the drunken lout of a king, Belshazzar. And he was treacherously thrown into the lion's den. And then at the end of his life, he received terrifying visions about future persecutions that left him ill and exhausted for days. But he lived with his God. And, says our text, he was still there in the first year of Cyrus. Now, to appreciate the importance, you have to appreciate the importance of that year. Isaiah had prophesied about Cyrus 200 years before. And he said, I will raise up Cyrus, my righteousness, and I will make all his ways straight, and he will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. And the book of Chronicles ends with it, and the prophecy of Ezra starts with this man. When it says in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put in writing, 
This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And any one of his people among you, all those who hadn't given up their identity, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So the first year of Cyrus was the year of Israel's return. The Lord had preserved his people and the remnant as the representative of all of Israel returns. They were not absorbed in the world of Nebuchadnezzar's empire since the Messiah had to come. And this last verse tells us that there was light at the end of the tunnel. Daniel by then, probably in his 80s, and maybe too old or as a court official not allowed to return, is still there. He, for himself, saw the return of the first group of Israelites to Jerusalem in accordance with Cyrus' decree, but really in fulfillment of Isaiah's and Jeremiah's prophecy, in accordance with the covenant promise of the ruler of this world. And what joy and encouragement that Daniel saw the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy which he had earlier in his life so faithfully followed. And so we may be assured that in the difficulties of this life there is light at the end of the tunnel in accordance with the covenant promise of the ruler of this world. So finally then, and in summary, Philip Briss wrote a hymn about Daniel. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them, the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. There to be a Daniel, there to stand alone, there to have a purpose firm, there to make it known. Well, yes, there to have a purpose firm and there to make it known. But you do not have to stand alone. For do not forget that the real story is not about Daniel and all hail is not due to Daniel's band. Because the book of Daniel is about Daniel's and our God. And to declare his sovereignty was the purpose and to trust in his sovereignty was Daniel's basis as it is ours. Now Daniel is long gone. But Daniel's Lord is sovereign today here in London. And he places us in this world. And we have to seek the shalom of the place where we live. But we are not of this world. And that is why at times we have to draw the line. And then there is no time for delay and no excuse for drift. But as in Daniel's days, the world is his. And therefore we can trust in him today. As Joshua said, then choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Amen.